Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, the Rogue Rabbit Trail series. Each time I talk to a guest, we sometimes find ourselves off topic. These smaller episodes feature audio that didn't make it to the final episode. This Rogue Rabbit Trail features cut audio from my conversation with author, playwright, and executive director of The Rabbit Room, A.S. Pete Peterson. If you haven't listened to that full episode, I encourage you to do so before you continue any further in this one, so you have a better context for the conversation. We did find ourselves on some interesting rabbit trails that took us further away from the topics at hand, but that were worth bringing into this shorter episode. We talked more in-depth about his background, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's fireplace mantle, the one that he sat in front of while he wrote Lord of the Rings, and Pete's upcoming projects. We'll start with more information about his background in the Marines, what he didn't enjoy, and what stuck with him. I'm not here to talk bad about the military because I'm very grateful and proud of my service. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a sense in which after four years, most of my friends who are like me got out and went on to college and to okay. pursue their dreams. And I was stuck in for another two years. And so then I, I kind of had this realization that, you know, there is some sense at least in which the people who stay in the military long-term, some of them are great, amazing people. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just there because it doesn't take much. You just kind of have to stick around, mm. which meant that um, I felt like I was always going to be working for someone that I could um, outperform. Sure. And it wasn't going to matter, right? If that makes sense, right? And again, like this is not to say that that's how the whole military is. Like there are amazing people in the military, right? Um, well, it's almost a sense of in any organization. Yeah, the longer you yeah. stick around, for the most part, right? Th there are people I know in jobs I had five years ago that are VPs of things suddenly, right. and it's just because they stayed yeah. and everybody else left. Yeah. So I feel like the military in some ways is a dramatic example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was anxious to get out and kind of like do my own thing and be recognized for what, what I was able to do. Yeah. And uh, that's what always blows my mind about things like Ernst and Young or these places where it's like you come in at a salary and maybe there's negotiating a salary, but then there are these levels yeah. and then you go up a thing and you're there for five years. And then, and that, that's really, that's really weird to me. Yeah. Part of the, hallmark of being a Marine I've learned is this, the regimented sort of like, keep my things pressed and I'm going to make my bed every morning. <laughs> did you keep any of that with you? <laughs> or did if my wife hears this, she, she will be laughing. <laughs> Primarily the Marine Corps made me sick of that kind of stuff. Okay. But what did stick is um, my need to have my clothes folded a very particular way. Really? And so she oh doesn't touch my, my laundry. Like I fold <laughs> okay, mine good. very specifically and they're in nice, neat little squares on the shelf. Do you like that just because it looks? <laughs> it just seems wrong <laughs> to me if it's not done that way. 
Next, we'll talk more about Pete's development of his Fiddler's Gun novel series. Where'd you come up with, where did that That's a great question. <laughs> like, I think, I was thinking at the time a lot about the kind of stories that last, what makes them that way. And when I say that, I mean like Treasure Island and sure. Dickens and The Count of Monte Cristo and like these, these stories that we feel like have been around forever and we all love them and uh, will we'll always be here for us. And so I think it was me trying to get into that mode. And, you know, so it, it becomes the, uh, the kind of uh, period setting uh, that's kind of romanticized, mm-hmm. at least in my mind. And then the sense of adventure, mm-hmm. coming of age novel. Mm-hmm. And then I really wanted it to be firmly based in American uh, history okay. because so much of the, so many of the things I love are based in British or European mm-hmm. history. You know, myths and legends and knights and kings mm-hmm. and all these kind of things are very non-American. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted there to be an American version of that sort of thing. And there are plenty of them I've learned since. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was kind of my now that the Google is out there and yeah, the interwebs, or now that the Pete Peterson reads more widely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, did you read? Did you were you not reading widely then? I was, but like I said, you know what I'm reading is you know Dostoevsky and okay. you know Dante and all these oh other, like a bunch of like the classic you know sure. wh- most of which are not American because mm-hmm. America's only been around for 200 years. You know, mm. um, you wanted something that Wishbone could do on wishbone oh you don't know wishbone i don't know what is that oh man um on pbs this is for those of us who don't have didn't have cable growing up there is this little dog named wishbone who would um there he would go between real life with his owner joe this is like a real life dog this is real life people and then he'd be like this reminds me of of the story of Huckleberry Finn. And then it'd be like, and it goes to Wishbone in a little Huck Finn costume right. running around in like a cemetery with a, and they'd act out all of these like yeah. American classics um, on Wishbone. Yeah, so, that's exactly what I want. Yeah, yes. no, I could do that. Okay, Lord of the Rings fans, these next bits are for you. We get on a bit of a rambling conversation as I had just started Fellowship of the Ring, and in his explanation of the word hutchmoot, he points out that intmoot is a thing. And, well, off we went. Um, or ints. Oh, <laughs> int or ints. Oh, Yeah, Lord okay. of the Rings geeks will get that one. Right, yes. Uh, I'm, so, a, yeah. I'm a couple chapters into, I've, I've begun... The, uh, the, I've begun the journey. Okay. So I'm a few chapters into Fellowship of the Ring. All right. Well, stick with it because Fellowship is a hard book to read the first time. You know what? I'm actually enjoying it. Well, that's good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Just good, know that that's... once you get past that book, it's like full speed ahead. Oh, good. Yeah. The Tom Bombadil thing. What is, is... going on yes, with Tom Yes. Thank Bombadil? you. I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the more that I've read it and reread it, the more I've come to appreciate Tom Bombadil. Okay. But okay. for years, I was like, what is this guy doing here? Well, especially I adore the movies. Yeah. And so a large part of me, I was a little scared to read the books because I didn't want the movies to be ruined. Mm-hmm. But it's actually been very helpful because I picture all of these characters doing mm-hmm. the things. So it's been really nice. But still Tom Bombadil, I can't. <laughs> and I, I, but I do see why people, the purists, were upset with the movies because yeah. there's a little bit more whimsy in the books. Yeah. The movies are just pure, dark. like, dark, yes, and it's a little bit more whimsical totally. in the books. And so I get that. Yeah. Um, but I still see Elijah Wood. Which also means that in the books there's more at risk, I think. Explain. Um, well, I mean, the, because of that whimsy and that lightness that is there so readily in the books, mm-hmm. um, the darkness is that much more threatening because you oh, recognize wow. what's 
being threatened. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the books, I mean, yeah, you get the, the opening chapter in Hobbiton where everything is happy and, mm-hmm. you know, awesome. But then that's all gone for mm-hmm. the most part. And mm-hmm. so it's just oppressive, mm-hmm. which is fine. I, I love the movies, but mm-hmm. I just Well, think... even the, the nine-year period where Frodo gets the ring yeah. and Bilbo leaves, <laughs> and then it's nine years? Right. That, it's, it's true. The movies suddenly go to this place of, yeah. take it, go, run, yeah. you know? And to, um, to their credit, those movies are, um, it's an amazing adaptation. Mm. Now, having done adaptations of my own, like yeah, with Frankenstein, like I have a real respect for how difficult it is to take something that's huge and sprawling mm. and boil it down to its essence mm. to get the same story across in a 90 minute or two hour time period. And like, I, you know, I just went back and watched The Fellowship of the Ring recently and I was just kind of mind blown by what a great adaptation it is. It's mm. not perfect. You know, it doesn't do it, make all the choices that I would have made, but it, it takes an almost um, impossible task and makes something really great out of it, mm-hmm. which is to be commended. Tolkien's Fireplace. Tolkien's Fireplace <laughs> won't be going at Northwind Manor. Yeah. But you do have that. You've recently procured that. Yeah, we just got it uh, like two days ago. So we we, uh, we were able to acquire J.R.R. Tolkien's, the fireplace that was in J.R.R. Tolkien's bedroom which is, was next to the desk where he wrote at least part of The Lord of the Rings. So it, when I say his fireplace, I mean it's like his, the facade, the mantle, the mantle around sure. the fireplace. It's like a tile kind of thing. How? How How, how did that happen? It, funny story. Well, we were actually sitting in a staff meeting, and uh, Andrew was like, hey, you know, this is funny. I just saw on eBay that this guy's selling Tolkien's fireplace. It's like $45,000, so we should get that. And we were like, ha, 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 yeah, right. And Andrew was like, I'm just going to send him an email real quick and say, like, uh, hey, if you would like to donate that instead to a nonprofit, uh, and then it would have a little more meeting that, rather than just ending up in some rich guy's, like, man cave, uh, we'd like to talk. And so Andrew sent him the email, and, like, 10 minutes later, he gets a response that just says, oh, my gosh, I'm a huge Andrew Peterson fan. Let's talk. <gasps> you are kidding me. No, no. So he oh. ended up coming, like, way down on the price that made it affordable for us. And yeah, that's how we ended up with the fireplace. Wow, what a crazy experience for him. Yeah. So he actually, the guy actually lived in like St. Paul or something. Okay. And he had bought it from the folks who renovated Tolkien's house. So like it's got a letter of provenance, you know, so it, you know, it it went from those people to him and he's had it and then he's given it to us. Oh my gosh. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's also funny, like it's not this, like when you say Tolkien's fireplace, I think everybody has in their head like this epic (laughs) like giant fireplace that like Vikings would dance around or carved out of oak. (laughs) Right. So, and that's what I had in my mind too. And then when we got it, like this is a bedroom fireplace. (laughs) So, you know, it's not a huge imposing thing. It's still beautiful. And I think it's perfect for where where we're going to use it. We're putting it in the library at Northwind Manor. Mm. Uh, But it's funny when we opened it up, somebody said, I'm getting like a real kind of like, Spinal Tap, Stonehenge vibe right now. <laughs> Stonehenge <laughs> as it comes down. And it's then in the danger of being people... trod upon by dwarves. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so it's not that small. It's not that small, but no. it's definitely is not this big epic thing that I think a lot of people expect. Right. Yeah. But it's a great artifact. Next, we talk more about how Pete got his pen name. Which on the topic of pen names... I mean, I love like the C.S. Lewis thing. And that, was that a... <laughs> My name is Arthur Sherman Peterson. Which is okay. a killer name. No. Well, yeah, okay. Arthur's Thank you. a great... Thank, Arthur Thank Peterson is a great name. It, it's a great name. 
however, it is my father's name. Oh. So my dad was Art Peterson growing up. Okay. And so nobody was going to call me Art or Arthur. Ah. Uh, and so that meant that growing up, my name was Sherman. Uh, yeah. And like you can imagine how that goes oh. over in middle school. Like, it's just <laughs> not, not ideal, right? No. Oh, no. Uh, so, but you know, it was my name, whatever. Wasn't yeah. happy with it. But when know? I joined the Marine Corps, everybody in the Marine Corps goes by their last name. And Peterson really quickly became Pete. Okay. So uh, for six years, everybody called me Pete. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, that just stuck. Because mm. um, I was living with my old Marine Corps buddies and... You know, so ever since then, since I was 19 years old, everybody in my life, except for my family, has called me Pete. Okay. Uh, and so that, that's just my name. Uh-huh. But then when it came time to publish a book, it was like, oh, what goes on this? Is it going to be yeah. Arthur Peterson, Sherman Peterson, Pete Peterson? I didn't feel like any of those fit. Pete Peterson just sounded silly. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was just like, you know, I'm just going to take a cue from my literary heroes, yeah. like T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and right. J.R. Tolkien and just go with A.S. Peterson. Right. Uh, however, the unforeseen consequence of that was that a lot of people confuse my books with my brothers. Oh yeah, that would. So Andrew Peters, they read the Wingfeather Saga by Andrew right. Peterson, and then they see, you know, right next to those on the book table at an event or in the rabbit room store, they see the Fiddler's Gun by A.S. Peterson. They assume it's the same person, <laughs> and they take it home and they read it to their eight-year-old, and then they send me angry emails. Oh no, because my books Uh-oh. are not for kids. Oh. <laughs> like I did not write them for children. They are they are very much not children's oh, books. No. They're about war. Sure. You know, they have really hard situations in them. They have some realistic language in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's Uh-oh. it happens all the time where people um get to a certain point of the, and I know what point they're talking about. They get to a certain point of the book and they're like, we're reading this out loud to our children and we realize, ooh, maybe I should read ahead. I'm like, yes, you <laughs> Why should. Why would you not? I know. It's this really weird assumption that people make because yeah. Andrew and I are brothers. They just, even when they know sometimes, they assume that we're writing mm. for the exact same audience. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not. Um, it's not. I have nothing against children's literature. It's just sure. not who I'm writing for. Right. One of the things that's funny about it is having, you know, my family calls me Sherman. Okay, Which just I, Sherman. Sherman, or okay. Sherm even. Sherm, well, that's even better. <laughs> yeah, keep laughing. Uh, so they call me Sherman, and then people who don't know me at all call me Arthur, ah, right? So yes, like right. If, if a bill collector calls, is oh, Arthur no. there, you know? No. And then if, some, if somebody calls me on the phone and says, is Pete there? Like, I know it's somebody yeah. I actually want to talk yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> you can kind of suss out who it is that you're yeah, yeah. talking to. So it's interesting. But what else is interesting about it is my parents refuse to call me Pete. They just can't get it through their heads. It's just, they always call me Sherman. And like, it's, you know, it's weird. They get on Facebook and call me Sherman. Do I'm they like, really? What are you doing? Oh no, not on the Facebook. <laughs> but the funny thing is that you know, I realized the other day that um, I've been Pete longer than I was ever Sherman. Just like in terms of how yeah, long you've been like on this I was, I was Sherman for 19 years of my life, uh-huh. but I'm 47 now, yeah. which means <laughs> there is much more of me that's Pete. And so I kind of want to tell my mom and dad something. I'm like, get with the program. Yeah, yeah. Like, who are you talking about? <laughs> Sherman is no more. <coughs> Only Pete now. Yeah, yeah. And finally, Pete shares a hysterical story of his first foray into playwriting. And then I tell him about the brilliant idea I have for an AS slash Andrew Peterson musical to be performed at a future Hutchmoot. Unfortunately, he wasn't into it at all. Then we talk about what's next for his theatrical work. And then I immediately, actually, this is a funny story. So the, uh, the director, he asked me to write this thing. He was like, hey, would you write the book for Cinderella? 
Now, in musical terms, that means <laughs> that write means the script, the, yeah, right? Right. But I didn't know that. And he's sitting here having this conversation. Would you write the book for this thing, for this play? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could write my own like novel of Cinderella. Oh, no. And I'm thinking through it all. <laughs> and it was like the conversation was almost over before I was like, wait a minute. Do you mean a script? And he's like, yeah, that's what it's called. Are we called putting a on a play here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had I literally, that, like, that's how little I knew huh. about the, the industry or, or, you know, that art form. Yeah. Had no idea. And then, you know, to the same point, when I wrote the book, I wrote lyrics, which you don't do yeah. unless you're Andrew Lloyd Webber. Sure. You know, I can't compose music. I can't <laughs> sing. I can't play music. I was just like, it'd be really cool if somebody said this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Actually, uh, in a future Hutchmoot years from now, uh-huh. an A.S. Peterson original play with an Andrew Peterson um, lyric and music would uh-huh. be very, a very interesting <laughs> that w- on I don't that think Friday that night of Hutchmoot. That, that would never be, happen. You could ha- hold auditions, uh, yeah. the Hutchmoot before. <laughs> For this original production, yeah. What so? What is next for you? You've talked about the Corey Ten Boom play. Yeah, that's this year. Um, I'm flying to Houston here in a couple of weeks to do the first table read, mm-hmm. which I'm super excited about. I'm also really nervous about it. It's a book like my other two plays. The Battle of Franklin was an original story. Like it was based in on uh, historical fact, but nobody had ever told the story dramatically before. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had free reign to do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with Frankenstein, you know, it's 200 years old. It's been adapted a million times. It doesn't matter what you change. You're like, you can kind of give your own spin to the story. But with Corey Tinboom, um, it was published in the 70s, and it is beloved all over yes. the world. And people yeah. know the book backward and forward. They've been raised with the book. They know exactly what they want when they come to see this play. And uh, that's terrifying to me because I can't include everything, you know, and it is going to be my own spin on it because, uh, you know, I'm a different storyteller than Corey Ten Boom was. Mm -hmm. And uh, my method of telling her story is going to be different than her method of telling her own story. Mm. And it's theater too, which is a different um, medium. You know, it's Mm. not the same as a novel or a movie. So anyway, I'm a little apprehensive, but I think it's all going to be fine. What was your research process like for that? Uh, Well, we went to Amsterdam Mm. Uh, she she lived in Harlem, which is just outside of Amsterdam. So we spent about a week there, visited her house, stayed in the town, and kind of got to know you know the culture over there. And uh, then we drove from Amsterdam all the way across Germany to visit Ravensbrück concentration camp, mm. where she and her sister were held. Wow. And that was like one of the um, hardest things I've ever done. Like it was, I was not prepared for the experience of visiting a concentration camp. I, oh, I, yeah, that's I've a... told people it's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon. You know how, like, have you been to the Grand Canyon? I have not. I've oh. been to a concentration camp, okay. but I haven't been to a Grand so Canyon. So what typically happens with the Grand Canyon is you've seen pictures of it all your life. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's just this big canyon. But then when you go and walk up to the rim, you're like, oh, my gosh, it's so much bigger than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And that's how going to a concentration camp yeah. is. Like, I've seen all the movies and all this, but when we walked in and you really got to take in the enormity of the evil that happened there, like it's just, you, your brain can't even comprehend it. There's a very it's real so thing very... about being in a place. Yeah. Even if it was decades and decades yeah. ago, you're in a place. Yeah. And there's a, there's a uh, eerie reverence. Mm-hmm. I, I was 10 when I went to a concentration Where did you camp. go? Um, I really need to ask my grandma because it was either... It might have been done. And that's where we went there, too. Okay, okay. So Did it have a big 
um, sculpture. Yeah. Yes, like, that like, was the like one. barbed wire. Yes. Kind of. Yeah, yes. that's Duck Owl. Okay. Yeah. So we went to Ravensbrook one day, which is where Corey Tinboom was, and like stood in front of the oven where her sister was oh burned, and just this incredible experience for me in the context of researching the story. And you've because you've been in there. You've you've yeah. had to kind of experience their yeah. realities. Yeah, it was powerful. And then so that was that's up in North Germany. And then we took like the six hour drive. Uh, the next day, we drove all the way down to Dachau. And on the drive, my wife read out loud Elie Wiesel's Night, oh my which is like the bleakest book I've ever read. Mm-hmm. It's an, an incredible book, and like it's kind of it's the kind of shocking book where. Like you're hearing the things that you're being told and you're like, can that really be true? Yeah. Like, can it have really been that awful? Mm. And then we get to Dachau and we walk in and we see the pictures of what we had just read about. And you're like, oh my gosh, it really is that awful. And so it was two or it was three days of just uh, bleak depression. You did those back to back? (laughs) Back to back. Yeah. Oh my. And so like when we got like after about three hours at Dachau, we just walked back to the car and sat there and cried. Yeah, absolutely. It was really, really powerful. And and I'm glad I did it because it really has shaped the play in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, um, yeah, it's interesting. I've also told my wife like now, like my first play was about the civil war uh, and it's about the bloodiest battle in the Civil War. And it's just everybody dies at the end. And it's, you know, just tears and grief and despair. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, the horribleness of, of humans and the way they treat one another. And then I wrote Frankenstein, which is about suffering and and the nature of evil and the, the abject uh, depravity of man. And now I'm writing about the Holocaust. Oh, and I'm like... Okay, the next play I write has got to be a comedy. I think you bring Cinderella <laughs> back and you just... I know, right? I mean, like, I've got to write a comedy. Otherwise, yeah. I'm typecast as like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do it well, I mean, maybe for your sanity and mental health, perhaps. Maybe yeah. not living in the... If you haven't listened to the full episode with Pete Peterson, you should do it now. You can find all episodes, past and present, at RogueOnesPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.